0: You can really only hire good people around you if you are very self-aware of your strengths and weaknesses. People tend to want to hire for their strengths. I have learned to be around people who almost make me a little uncomfortable because they're obviously probably better in an area than I might be.
1: Welcome everybody to In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I'm your host, Jason Buckland, and we welcome you back to our show where we speak with the very best and brightest in business. Our guest today is the person behind the very first unicorn of the decade. Kyle Kadakia is the founder and executive chairman of ClassPass, the fitness subscription platform that in January of 2020 reached a valuation of $1 billion, a very important mark of course, in the world of startup companies. But after all the headlines ClassPass earned last year, you can imagine what happened next. Most every business you know was hit hard in 2020, but as gyms closed around the world, COVID wiped out for a time 95% of ClassPass's revenue, which is really something we have barely seen before and had to then precipitate either one of the following for Pyle's company, the crippling of a billion dollar brand or the setting of the stage for one heck of a comeback. Stick around with us for the next little while because Pyle is gonna tell us just what happens to a company when it stares into the abyss like it did and all the realities it must face about how to pivot and get back when public health factors beyond your control, take over a business, we're going to have a really interesting talk about venture capital firms and some of Pyle's unique experiences there relative to representation in the room during her fundraising for ClassPass. And also Pyle has a take. You are not going to want to miss about how human emotions are actually among the most powerful things for a company itself to learn how to use.
0: When I was younger, I think everyone always was like, you shouldn't be emotional. In business, you can't have empathy. At the end of the day, the best brands are the ones that understand emotionally what's going on. I think I used to feel like I couldn't always be that person, but I have learned like my emotions and my my intuition are what got me here. And I'm never going to ever make them feel like they don't belong.
1: Okay, let's go to her now. The famous story to our guest today is that in 2010, while working in business development at Warner Music Group, she gave herself two weeks to come up with a business idea of her own. In just two days, what was born was the idea that became ClassPass and its founder, former CEO and current executive chairman, Pyle Kadakia joins us today from her home in Los Angeles. Pyle, this is a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here on In Conversation with Shopify Plus.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, Pyle, soon enough, not every conversation had on earth will begin with a discussion about the pandemic. And indeed, there is a whole host of items I want to get into today with you on more positive terms, but really, it would be missing the mark somewhat if we started anywhere else because ClassPass, the company you founded, was obviously affected in about as extreme a way as possible by COVID 19. Absolutely reports that 95% of your revenue at one point had evaporated as gyms closed across the world. And that's really pretty unprecedented, isn't it? Unless you're Enron or something, which is to say you've done something wrong or illegal to precipitate such an abrupt and nearly total fall off. We really haven't seen this before for a modern industry segment. Now, I know there are some encouraging notes here to hit, and indeed ClassPass has done some smart things to get by and of course claw back some of those earnings for a much rosier outlook today. But my first question is almost intentionally vague in general, so feel free to take this in whichever direction you like. From where you sat, pile as executive chairman, what happens within the walls of a company when such a cataclysmic event like that arrives like it did for ClassPass last year?
0: You know, my team, especially the one that you know we've built over these past ten years, is one that is so resilient. And what we really did is we snapped into action into, okay, what do we need to do to keep our mission alive? Which means how do we make sure we innovate on the customer front right away to make sure people can obviously keep working out as our studios shut down. And on the other side of it, it was how do we protect these studios, right? Because every class mattered to them. Every person who walks into that door matters to their bottom line. And that became a really big struggle. We really were worried about the entire industry disappearing, right? Because they couldn't afford their rents. Obviously they let most of their employees go. So we turned our minds and really our hearts into protecting and preserving the industry from like a very functional perspective of what can we do to help these studios survive. And on the other side of it, it was, How do we get a product up and going for our customers? And our team in a matter of two weeks flipped our entire homepage and our UI into being like a digital video streaming platform, which was so crazy. Like we had been experimenting with this for the past few years, but it was something we were sort of doing in like a lab sort of environment. So for that to become our product and our mainframe was something that, you know, was unbelievably like magical and it required hard work, it required drive. But the Class West team is one and you know we can go into it, but we've pivoted many times. We're not scared of that. We're not fearful of sort of having to redefine ourselves. Like of course this was something that you know the world was kind of going through together. This wasn't like, oh our business needs to fix this point or something happened and you know that needs addressing just for us. Like this was across the entire world. So We knew that we were just going to have to get through this time. I think we all had fear, you know, from an emotional point, not just about like the company, but about our own lives, you know? And so I think this also became a moment for us all as human beings to talk about that. And I think we just, even though we couldn't see each other in person, had to find a way to emotionally connect, but I will say this: like team just never lost sight of the vision and That to me is the most important thing. And we'd been here before we've had to rewrite the rules before, and we went and did that, you know, during this time, no matter how hard it was and how scary it was. And I think it did feel a little bit better that we weren't doing it sort of alone. Like we knew that the whole world would have to kind of handle this one in a way that, you know, was going to help so many businesses survive and help customers keep moving through this time.
1: Well, I imagine the answer to this question will tie into some of the things ClassPass did to shift parts of its business model over the past year or so. But I first wanted to ask how leadership of a company like yours begins to think about its own mortality at a time like that. How did you view ClassPass's long term security then as it related to its business model? Or how do you go about trying to circumstance proof a company to ensure its own survival?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I think. You obviously during this time, it was a great time to have a short-term perspective on how are we going to survive this pandemic? There was obviously going to be long-term behavioral changes to the entire industry, but you know, you can't predict those things, right? Obviously at the start of it, right? Like when we all started getting on Zoom and working out digitally, like those things felt like, okay, we're going to do this for a few weeks and then it became the norm, right? And I don't think you can predict all of it. All you can do is keep learning and keep making sure that you're providing a good experience to help that. I think for most of us, we have a very hopeful outlook on the fact that people will return and want to go back to in-person classes. And I think that is a very big part of it. It wasn't, okay, let's shift our whole model and throw away everything. It was, let's stay connected to the mission. How do we keep doing this? and providing the same experience and obviously preserving our studios through this time, this hard time. And on the other end of it, how do we make sure that on the flip side of when, you know, this is over, we have a product that's actually even better than when we went into this. Right? I think that's really what we focused on is how do we prioritize like stuff that we never could get to when you're a fast group, you know, growth startup, you can't fix certain things. You don't have time to focus on it, right? Everything, is high priority and you just can't get to the little stuff sometimes. And this helped us sort of take a pause, take a breath and say, you know, how can we do things from better search? You know, and we were able to start adding new categories to Fastpass mainframe. So we expanded outside of fitness into beauty and wellness. And that's something we started sort of trickling and doing in the years before the pandemic, but we really didn't have time to focus on how the product would really support those types of experiences. And to answer your question, it's really about, you know, being able to make the decisions you need to survive the short term, but not lose sight of that long-term vision because yeah, we 100% believe like the world is connected still in person. Like there is of course, like a shift in fitness to people working on at home. And, And that's great. Like this is about people moving and finding ways to feel comfortable doing new things. And if that means in your own home, then that's great because that's sometimes the easiest way to get it done. But there is something also that's unique that happens when you meet in person with people. And we believe like there is going to be a hybrid world on the other end of this. And of course, that's still being written today.
1: Okay, Pyle. I wanted to go back if we could and spend some time on the earlier days of your founding story and what lessons we might be able to learn there, please. For those who don't know your resume, you studied at MIT, you were an analyst at Bain and company, and these are really the points on a CV that set you up for a life in corporate America that most people dream of. And yet, while you were working, as we mentioned at the top of the show at Warner music group, you decide something about this path forward is no longer right for you. Now I imagine we have some people listening in our audience that may have been, or are now in similar situations as you were good jobs, stable careers, really a long list of reasons not to give it all up and try something out of the ordinary based on your own experience pile. What advice might you give for how to go about navigating? What I imagine is a very uneasy move to leave it all and try to build something of your own.
0: So in all honesty, it was a six year decision. Really that, that was in all of that. So when I took that job at Bain, of course, like coming out of a good school, that was, you know, one do you go into consulting? It felt like the right check mark for me to do. I don't even really think I put like that much thought into it aside from like, how do I land the job, which is like what we were all used to doing. And I got it and I was doing it. And the real magical part was when I went to New York city. I looked up class of course, cause it's me, um, and it was, you know, I wanted to dance. I wanted to continue in my Indian dance training and, um, I joined, uh, this dance troupe and I was trying to sort of dance in New York city and be a consultant, which already seemed kind of strange, obviously to most people. And I had to like really maneuver my life to make both work and it was not easy. And I would say in my third year at Bain, I really was like, I really love the dance side. I love going to class. I love training. I'm, I'm a performer. And I felt really stifled by needing to sort of like, you know, be at work like 80 hours a week and, you know, not have time for the things I loved. And I was already starting to make hard choices in my third year. And I mean, one day I, I literally called in sick because I wanted to go try out for So You Think You Can Dance. Like these were sort of like, the decisions and like the moments of my life that already were coming about. And so I took this like half step and I I took a job in corporate America at Warner music group, and it was a great job. I learned about an entire industry, um, shifting, but the one thing I got from that was a more predictable schedule, which meant like, I knew what time I had to be at work. I knew what time I would get off of work, which meant I could go to class. I could do other things. And that's actually when I decided to start my first company, which is my dance company. And that is so important for me because it taught me how to be a leader. It taught me how to be an entrepreneur. It taught me how to create something from nothing, even though it was this, you know, side thing I was doing and I was coordinating girls sort of like at after hour rehearsals, after, you know, work and we would perform on the weekends. But I was doing that all by myself and using my own money. I was like learning how to put people together. And all these things were little signs for me of, I was capable enough of doing something in my life that is very much on my own path. I didn't need to follow the regular mold. And so the success of my dance company, honestly, is what gave me the confidence. When I got to this point, when I ended up back at my desk, I looked up a class at Warner, you know, I was training in ballet at the time and I looked up a class and I couldn't find it. And I think for me in that moment, I saw something really big. Like it wasn't about a product idea. It wasn't about this, like what class class is even today. It was a problem. It was this, oh my God, I can't get to class. There are thousands, if not millions of classes going on in this exact moment. How can I not easily find one, right? Like it was just an obvious decision and an uh, obvious problem that existed. And I realized I was so motivated, but most people in the world had given up all the things that they loved when they were children. And here I was like this Bain consultant, this girl at Warner music group who was sitting here like performing on the weekends and still living out her, her childhood passion, you know? And I, obviously at some point I realized like, this is what made me who I was. And I realized other people needed to have it in their life as well. So for me, it was this idea of my confidence combined with a sense of this big problem in the world that I felt so uniquely apt to solve with my background from, you know, MIT and Bain combined with my passion for, um, you know, dance and classes that sort of came together at this perfect moment. Right. And look, it doesn't always happen that way, but I do believe like when you care enough about something the universe helps you. And I think, you know, I didn't quit right away. It was, it wasn't like, oh, okay. I had this idea. It took me still six months after that. I did a ton of market research. I was like, I was analyzing other online to offline businesses like SockDoc doc and seamless web and open table to learn how they work, to see how I could do this in the class industry. Um, I was like doing customer surveys with my friends. So I was, building my case. Right. And I still didn't quit my job. And I actually think like, for me, it was the moment I quit my job. That was really that moment. And that took me six, seven months after I really had the epiphany of this idea to get to. Um, And the only other thing I would say on all of that is the third component of all this is getting support from people I loved and cared about, which was my parents, you know, and I think for any immigrant a child of immigrant like i am you know i think they sacrificed so much to come here i've always felt a deep responsibility to do well and make sure that you know i i did everything that their sacrifices sort of would live up for you know and i i wanted to make sure i did that well and so i really remember thinking about how do i get their trust in this and you know, one thing I learned over these six years is like, they were a part of everything I did. Like they saw my dance company succeed. They saw me obviously get into a good school and, you know, do everything. And I think it came to the point where my mom was like, you know, you seem to be able to do everything you put your mind to. And so I have confidence in you. If you have something else in the world that you want to do um to go for it because you've always figured it out. And you know, the other part is that my dad and I, we sat down, we built a budget. We made sure that I was financially responsible in making this leap. Like I think that's a really big component is to not just like jump off a cliff without sort of having the whole plan. And I looked at my finances and I had saved up enough money to sort of have three years of this period where I could really discover what I wanted to do and explore this company and this idea. And um, that was really what I needed
1: at Bain. You had this cool nickname that I read about the queen of cold calling, which I don't have a question about. I just thought it warranted mentioning here, but also while at Bain, I believe this is the place where you encounter two very important people in retail and the direct consumer space. And they are Haley Barna, who co-founded Birchbox, the famous makeup and beauty subscription service, and also Jeff Raider who is part of a really niche subset of super entrepreneurs in this space in that he was a co-founder of not one but two powerhouse D2C names in Harry's and Warby Parker. What did you learn from Haley and Jeff as it related to how to build a consumer brand that would really catch on and hit it big?
0: I mean, you know, Birchbox uh, was a company, obviously, when I was in those early days of Classless, that we, we really, we were studying because we were building a female centric brand. Right. And they were one of the only ones out there. We got the product wrong in the beginning. Like the product didn't work. It took us two, three years, but the third try, like it started really working. And I went to dinner with Haley and you know, it's really hard as an entrepreneur to know if something is really working. And she looked at my growth curve and she was like, wait, let me see that again. And she gave me like some of her staff at her company at that, like, and it helped me build so much confidence in knowing that like I had hit something big and that this was the right way to go because there's no blueprints in this world. Like there's no way to know if like your growth is something exceptional or if it's just like normal. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, you know, having the network of people like Haley, Jeff, and there's actually like some, so many more entrepreneurs that came out of our class and we're, we're taught this big picture thinking obviously at Bain and the, how to think through obviously enormous decisions, but I think what's really unique and we all kind of did it. And I love hearing about like Haley with Katya, you know, HBS, like making the boxes and sending it out. And I love that because it's so real and it's so hands on. Um, and that's like the heartbeat of entrepreneurs is we know how to kind of do both like the big picture and also get our hands dirty. Um, and so I think that was really important. And then Jeff, I mean, Jeff has been uh, a part of my journey from the beginning. He was on the first case I was on at, at, at Bain. So literally like my first week of being at Bain, we were on a healthcare company and we had to like go out to Long Island and he was on my first case with me. So I've known Jeff from the beginning. He's sort of you know been this Amazing mentor and guide for me. And I remember even when I was raising my capital in the beginning, raising some of my, I think it was my series A. I mean, Jeff helped me a ton. And it's the only way to kind of know what to do is once again, like call people up and be like, what should I do? You know, what term sheet should I take or who should I speak with? And our network really helped in, um, you know, securing capital. And especially once again for like female founders, I think networking is so important.
1: So some things about founding a company that you have been vocal about include living on a budget, which we touched on today. I think you've said that you set aside three years of savings to live on when you left your job and also about narrowing an idea until it becomes a viable business. And this is something we talked about as well. Indeed ClassPass itself had a few iterations before it became the company and product offering it is today. What in your mind were the most important things you learned about how to polish and mold and really home in on a specific idea? So that it will be the best fit when it reaches the market.
0: Where we started was we were replicating a product that worked in other industries, right? And that seemed to have product market fit in other industries. And there was really, you know, no doubt on that. Honestly, like I raised over a million dollars on that idea because it worked in other industries. So everyone just thought it was going to work and. I I say that as it was sort of a mistake because we didn't realize that the class industry and the fitness industry was going to actually be very different for consumers to get into it. required another whole part of motivating people to being able to go to class. Right. So, you know, in a way I realized like I couldn't be obsessed with my product idea. I had to be obsessed with what I really wanted people to do, which was get to class. So until I was getting people to class, I was actually accomplishing nothing. Right. Because yeah, like it's great to have a bunch of products and even potentially sell things at a discount, but if you aren't getting people to actually move and, you know, pursue their passions. I really wasn't accomplishing anything. And so, um, that was sort of my guiding light, you know, and it took me a little bit to get there, to be honest. Like, I think in the beginning, um, it's really easy to focus on what other people think is success. Like I raised capital and we were getting press and all these other aspects of it. And they almost kept me away from like really realizing that there was a problem and that my product wasn't working. It was a hard moment when we launched and no one used it because. We just expected it to work. I always remember this, this summer where we were like tweaking the buttons on the site and thinking that it was like something wrong with the UI. And I think I finally realized like, no, we had just gone like the wrong way and we didn't do enough research. And... Um, I think what I realized after then was like how to really build an MVP. Um, I don't know, you know, for folks who don't know what that is, it's a minimal viable product, which means like, how do you actually prove if your product is working? And I realized like I could build like a a website sort of. Where on the front end, it did what I needed for the customer to make decisions on classes, but I didn't need to build all like the integrations and all like the tech for it until I knew the product was working. And so by the time we were on like the second and third product, like we were processing all these reservations manually. Like literally someone would book like Barry's bootcamp and I would get an email and I would go in like onto the portal and like log on with some like fake email that we created and make the reservation. And this sort of like reminds me of even what we were just talking about with Haley and like making the, you know, her birch boxes like in her room and mailing them out. Like this is when I was like, it actually was like the best time in the company. It was the hardest and probably like, I mean, we didn't sleep. We were working around the clock to make this happen, but that was when I felt the most actually connected to the mission because people were actually going to class and we learned so much in that, in that time. It was just really important for us to keep iterating and keep pivoting until we got it right and not sort of get stuck in being able to say like, oh, we built it and we raised money and great. We have a site that's up, like, let's get comfortable and stay here. And once again, I think that's still at the core of, of the company, even 10 years later.
1: Taking a quick break from our chat with Pyle Kadakia to bring you a preview of our next episode in this series with our guest, Philip Krim. Philip is the co-founder and CEO of Casper, which when you start to talk about the direct consumer brands that started it all at or near the beginning, certainly falls Casper, the mattress brand by which all others have been measured. Philip joins us to talk going public and what happens to a company when you are a darling private DDC brand that IPOs and suddenly has its financials open for all to either admire or brutally pick apart. He'll talk very specifically about all the ways Casper got itself off the ground from early PR strategies to fulfillment issues to yes, advertising on podcasts. And Philip gets philosophical with us about kind of the holy grail for a startup, which is for its name to become ubiquitous in its association with the consumer segment that it enters. If I said, okay, you want to go exercise and run faster. You would think about brands like Nike and Under Armour or Lululemon. If I said you should start to eat better, you might start to shop at Whole Foods and buy organic or maybe try Beyond Meat. But if I say go get a better night of sleep, there's really no brand that comes to mind for most consumers. We want that to be Casper. That was Philip Krim, who is next up in our series. Before we get back to Pyle Kadakia, the show is brought to you by Shopify Plus, the enterprise platform that powers the very best brands in the market from Allbirds and Gymshark to Staples and Heinz. And you can find out more today at shopify.com slash plus. Now, without further ado, let's get back to Pile Kadakia. At some point after launching ClassPass really is working well and you achieve what you've termed hockey stick growth. Your earnings go from a slight upward trajectory, almost through the roof in a short period of time. And you start to make note of things like, oh, look at all these meetings I can get now. And look at all these investors who once had no belief in me and now want me to take their money. Once ClassPass began to take off, what were the most important things you did to make sure this business would last and be built the right way?
0: When we really started being that rocket ship, I think I really started thinking about my team and people and obviously my investors in a complete different way. I remember feeling the sense of, oh my God, like we were, we we've got this, like we did it. Like I, you know, it was amazing to feel. And and I think there is something when you don't get it right the first time that like makes you even feel a deeper sense of connection to it. So like we were three years in and we finally got it. And it felt, you know, and obviously sometimes it takes longer. I never want someone to be like, oh, I have to do it in three years. So this stuff takes time. And but the beauty of it is it finally was working and investors wanted to speak with us. I felt like everyone wanted to like give us attention. And it was actually interesting because I had gone through this in a weird way before when my product wasn't working, um, now that it was like, it was an interesting time for me because I remember being like, no, 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 no. Like I'm never going to let the learnings of these past three years sort of go to waste. In terms of like focusing once again on this, like the heartbeat, the reservations, that's the most important, even though it's so easy to get caught up in like the glitz and glamor of like raising more capital, being, being on like in magazines and all that stuff. And I remember in my, you know, when I was like going out to meet a lot of VCs in my head, I was like, I was here a year ago and how come no one gave me a time of day? And of course, like, I will say this, like, this is when obviously like there needs to be a difference in the people around the table because I look back and I probably didn't see it then, but I'm like, yeah, like I was, I look different. I'm an Indian woman, you know, like I, I know all the time. And I mean, I, I advise companies today and I see, I see guys raise money on products that are nowhere close to the type of growth and even vision of ClassPass and it's so easy, you know? And so there is obviously like an education and a a bit of a shift that needs to happen. I think something inside of me knew that and it focused, it, it forced me to say, How do I get somebody who I truly know believes in me, believes in this vision, and is going to always protect it? I got lucky, Fritz Landman, who is the current CEO of ClassPass, he's obviously an investor. He was at Microsoft. I mean, I had actually met him during my seed round, and he was just this person that, like, our brains connected immediately when we started talking about the idea. And I got lucky that, you know, he was somebody who had access to capital, and he could tell that I was struggling with making this decision. And he sensed my fear, right? And that's what I don't think everyone always realizes that there's a fear in being able to say, what if I choose the wrong person here? Like as exciting as fundraising it is, it was also like, I was scared because I was like, I'm about to make a huge decision and I don't know any of these people. It's not that they're, I don't know them. So it's not that I know if they're good or bad or if I wouldn't work with them in the future. And luckily enough, I did end up working with, with many of them in the future. I just had no history to be able to say this was going to work, but I did, you know, Fritz had been my like left hand at that point for six months. Like he was the one person I trusted on my board. He had been helping to push, push things forward for me. And so, um, he was like, I think I can do this and get you your series a and your round. And I was like, great, I'm going to go with you. And I had to say no to a bunch of term sheets that, um, you know, and it was hard, but like, I literally was like, I'm not going to choose brand names over what I feel like is the right thing for me and the company. And I've never regretted that decision.
1: Following up on something you said in there, pile is do you have a sense of what you would like to see changed about the venture capital raising process so that people of different representations have a fair shot at the table?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's obviously about the people around the table, right? But I think it goes a step further. Even every partnership has a seniority to it, right? And we all know, like, it's the people who start who really end up having the voice. Like everyone reports to somebody, right? Like you really think about it. Like even the VCs, they have their LPs, right? And the LPs have their people. It's like a circular chain of people. And I think it's about realizing, Hey, you know, when I'm listening to a woman pitch a business about boutique fitness, let me get people who understand boutique fitness in the room and making sure. And, you know, a lot of My VCs would obviously be like, oh, like my wife does Pilates and yoga and all of that. And that's great. Like I, I appreciate that, but I'm like, those people need to be in the room and handing these checks out as well, because it is so important that they see that there are other problems in the world that is not just faced by the 50% of the population. It is faced by a much, and outside of even the 50%, a diverse group, right. Of people and different issues in the world. And we haven't solved everything in the world yet. There are so many more ideas and customer, especially opportunities that exist for whether it's smaller niche markets and cultural groups, and obviously women that is out there. And it's going to be built by the people who are from those industries, right? Because that's where the solvers are going to feel the most passionate from. And so I think it's really about having the faith, trying to really get the knowledge. And I think it's not about it being a check mark, right? I think this is like one big thing I've been really feeling. And I, especially like at the board level of so many companies, it should not be a check mark of how many, what percentage of like diversity you have and, and women. And I that is important, but you should get to it. And that percentage shouldn't be about some benchmark in the world. It should be based on your company and what it needs and the decisions because of the problem you're solving and the industry you are facing. And I think people aren't necessarily seeing it that way. It's like, it feels like a lot of like check marks right now. And I, I really want people to truly understand why
1: as class passes on its way up, you begin to attract comparisons to two major, major names, Uber and Airbnb, and you begin to draw comparisons to them in two ways. The first is that you are an ingenious tech solution to a common problem in your case easily finding fitness classes. But the flip side of that is from your critics. And you begin to face sentiments that we commonly hear about companies like this, some allegations that ClassPass is unfair to its studio partners, and indeed those are things you've been forced to come out and publicly defend in the past. In your mind, Payal, where did the comparisons begin and end between ClassPass and other tech companies like Uber and Airbnb?
0: That's a great, great, great question. Um, I mean, every one of these businesses is so unique, right? I mean, from a business level, Airbnb and Uber are not subscription businesses, and I think that is a big thing. Like, subscription businesses have a whole other complication to them. So think of already how complicated Uber and Airbnb are with like having a double-sided marketplace and then add a subscription on top of it. It adds like an entire complexity to it that we've had to maneuver because it's important, right? We need to make sure we're helping people stay connected to these studios while also managing, by the way, a fragmented partner base, right? So it's a very fragmented industry when it comes to all of our small businesses that we work with. And we obviously, every single one of them is so important. So we have to make sure we're sending the right amount of people to every single class. And that is like an entire part of our business that we're always trying to figure out how do we maximize revenue for every single business owner. But, you know, I think what's really interesting is all three of the companies have done things that I think if you thought 10 years ago, like would I ever do that, you wouldn't have. And I think those are the most iconic companies of our times are ones that when you we are like, I would have never gotten into the car with somebody else. Like, oh my God, I would have never slept in someone else's bed, right? And even with class, class, like someone being like, I know people would have wanted to aspire to be like, yeah, I would do a yoga class or whatever. But like, I love when people are like, I can't believe I went to a pole dancing class last week or I tried ballet for the first time or oh my God, I went to like, to boxing. Like I would have never thought I would have loved that and it transformed their lives. Like to me, and I think there are many more ideas like that. It's it's those ideas that change the world and change human behavior. And I think, you know, all of those companies have been able to do that, but, and a lot of it came from our own, like I said, personal pain points.
1: Speaking of other big names that ClassPass has been linked with. I wanted to ask your opinion on a couple of players in the fitness space that have entered, at least on the surface, the industry that you traffic in, and those are Peloton and mirror. These are of course, for those who don't know, kind of the premium in-home workout products and equipment brands today. Now, the person who succeeded you as CEO of ClassPass, Fritz Landman, has been on record about this, and I wonder if you agree. Customers of Peloton and Mirror aren't really the same necessarily as ClassPass customers in that to be one of those customers at minimum, you need the space in your home and the money to buy expensive equipment. Where do you stand on Peloton and Mirror and how they intersect with what ClassPass is doing?
0: I agree with what Fritz is saying. And I think that the unique part about what ClassPass has always done, and I think, uh, Some of this, once again, comes from founder market fit a little in the beginning. Like, I was scared to death to go to these classes. And 99% of the world is scared to go to a class they've never tried. Like, I think this is, like, the important part of it is... and, And to me, like, class was, like, while we are about fitness, like, the idea actually had other types of classes in there from the beginning. So we had things like pottery and painting and music classes. And the reason I bring that up is because it's important to think about being able to take class as a learning experience, right. As well as obviously a fitness experience because fitness for a lot of people is about, let me like, you know, get my run in, I want to lose calories. It becomes like a very like obligatory part of your life. And we never wanted class pass to be that right. It's about, it's not about like getting it done. It's about enjoying it thoroughly to learn and grow from. And so we were always kind of going after that more accessible market one that could absolutely afford it. I think Peloton probably has a bit more of an overlap with us. I mean, what's interesting is we work with Peloton as a studio and like, I mean, so much of the Peloton studio is filled with ClassPass customers because people love going in person. And that's the thing I think, you know, we've realized is for many ClassPassers, this idea of going to class is not necessarily about, let me get my check mark, an obligatory workout in, it's literally such a thrill. Like it is like this is what I'm doing with my day and my night. And I cannot wait for class. It's more of an experience you are going to. And obviously working out at home versus going to something is different because at home is not about an experience, right? It's really about like, I want to get it done. And by the way, like it is good to have both. And I think we're going to, as the world comes out of the pandemic, see a lot of, of both. But like, I know people who will do their Peloton and still go to class that day because they are completely different experiences and sort of, like I said, one might be about like, I got my calories and I got it done. And the other ones might be like, I want to go and learn ballet today. You know, it's like a total different experience for the customer.
1: We mentioned Fritz Landman and his succession of us CEO, which is a post you held until 2017, what has changed in your life professionally pile as you left the chief executive role to the company that you founded?
0: I have a lot less meetings. Thank God. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, it's really interesting how, when you start a company, you're really like able to just kind of focus on solving the problem and you're like in it and like, look, your team grows. Like, you know, we, we have, I mean, at this point, like, yeah, we have hundreds of employees and, you know, you get to a point where your day is really, it's all about management and making sure like the, obviously the machine keeps running and, you know, for someone like me who I think have has always been a little creative, like I actually like remember feeling like I was back at that, my like situation at Bain where I'm like, wait, like I don't want to be have feeling like I have a job and I need to like do all this to like, cause I have to, like, I really, I'm, I'm such a creative thinker. I wanted to make sure I never put that, uh, like that, that sense of, um, a box on me of like, this is what your day needs to look like. And I think when there was more attention being put on class class, it changed fundamentally who I had to like really be for the company, right. Externally, internally. And I think a lot of that ended up feeling like really defined and a box for me. So I would say like on the other side of that, I've been able to just go back to like, once again, connecting back to the vision, the mission, pushing the fact that we have to get into other experiences. So at the end of the day, I think it's more of like I'm less in the day to day and I get to spend my time really on the big picture, thoughtful things that I know the, the company needs to do, like moving into other categories, right? Or expanding into um, different product opportunities that we need to. And, and to me, that is how my brain is always going to work best.
1: In the world of retail startups and new tech companies, there is this designation called unicorn status. And that is any privately held company that reaches a valuation of $1 billion. Now, this is an interesting business subculture, right, in the sense that most consumers don't really know or pay attention to this stuff, and likely not many of your customers do either. But of course, who was named the very first unicorn company of the 2020s was ClassPass, which reached a 10-figure valuation in January of last year. What did you find changed about ClassPass when you became a unicorn? Whether it was how people in the industry responded to you, new doors you found open, additional pressures maybe that came with it? What, if anything actually becomes different once you reach that kind of stratosphere as a business?
0: It's a good question. Uh, you know, to me, I never started a company for evaluation, and I think like it's a really important point to make. And as much as I am so proud of it, I think the number one reason I am proud of that is kind of back to the earlier conversation we were having about having, especially investors, right, and other people in the world believe that a woman, especially a woman of color could build such a great and big business, right? Is to know that you should bet on things that you might not understand because they can turn into unbelievable successful outcomes. And to me, that was what was most important to me from that perspective, I think internally, for the company nothing really changed i mean it was a great moment to celebrate obviously and you know it was obviously all right before the pandemic and it was a great time and it, we were so happy that we reached it but like let's be honest it's a day it's like it's a moment and we still have to do our jobs like getting people to class means more to me than any of that you know i think when it comes to really to it but like i said i think it's about other people seeing it because you you know, there's, there's that saying that you can't be what you can't see. And so for any, you know, woman out there for, especially any Indian girl out there, like I really feel, I I feel the pressure sometimes. And, but I also feel, you know, the, the motivation to make sure that they know that they can do it too, you know, and they can put their minds to it. And yes, you have to fight a little bit harder, but you can do it. And, you know, there are big outcomes that and I want you to think big, right. In that way of, uh, what you can accomplish with your, you know, your startup or your life.
1: I wanted to ask if I could pile an item about your own growth as a business person and as a leader dance is something that many people know is a major, major part and influence in your life. And I think also may have been a place where you learned to be a leader and it was through dance, perhaps that these ideals took hold for you. How would you characterize the way your leadership efforts in business have matured and advanced? over your career?
0: I have learned who i like to work with. I think this is a really important part. So you can really only hire good people around you if you are very self-aware of your strengths and weaknesses, right? And I think a lot of people tend to want to hire for their strengths a lot because it's just easier, right? For to find people who kind of think the way you do um, and are good at sort of similar things. But I have learned in a way to almost be surrounded, whether that's been in dance or in, you know, class pass to be around people who almost make me a little uncomfortable because they're obviously probably better in an area than I might be. That all being said, there are values that I feel like I have learned, you know, when it comes down to certain types of work styles that I have, like those things need to be similar because I'm like, I'm like a super efficient person. I like positive people. I like people who like never feel like they're the smartest person in the room. And so like, those are things that I think I've learned to be like, I have to be around people like that and to hire in a good way. So I think hiring has definitely become a better thing, you know, and something I've learned and constantly learn as a leader. I think I've also really, figured out how to stay connected to like my mission and be that person who helps people always connect back to that true north. You know, it's so easy, even in our boardrooms, right? Like it's so easy to just get, start like looking at the numbers and get lost in like the finances. And I always feel like I'm that person in that voice who's like, let's not look at that. Like, let's think about what's actually going on here. Like what are our customers doing? What are our partners feeling? And I think that empathy is a part of my leadership style. Like I've actually have leaned into it. I think when I was younger, I think everyone always was like, you shouldn't be emotional, you know, and in business, you can't have empathy. At the end of the day, the best brands are the ones that understand emotionally what's going on. I think I used to feel like I couldn't always be that person, but I have learned like my emotions and my, my intuition are what got me here. And I'm never going to ever make them feel like they don't belong. And I I want other people um, to obviously feel that way because those are the things that give heart to the world. And I think now more than ever, people are looking for brands and companies that have that kind of heart and that ethos where you can truly care and connect. Like, of course, like hitting big numbers and valuations are important, all of that. But like, you need to have a heart and care about what you're building. And I think, you know, instilling that in your company, finding a way to codify that. Obviously that, you know, has challenges because you're always up against the business side of it, but I think I've always been a force. And I think back to your earlier question, like you know, Fritz and I are a good balance of that. You know, it's like, it's, we, we know how to fight over that at the end of the day and make decisions. And I think that's what makes things move forward without, you don't lose the soul. You obviously have to keep, keep the lights on, but you cannot lose the soul or it doesn't matter.
1: All right. I have a few more for you here, Payal. And for them, I wanted to return to class pass quickly if we could. And some of the lessons learned in growing your business. The first question is about running a global company because we get lots of listeners to this very show here for whom scaling a business internationally is a major, major issue confronting them today. ClassPass is all over the world now in parts of Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Australia, and feel free to go along here and be as specific as you can be. But what are some of the unique considerations you learned in growing ClassPass that go into expanding a company globally?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, what was really amazing and magical is our playbook, like, first of all, worked when we would go to these new markets and we would send, you know, our team out to these countries. Like sometimes they didn't even speak the same languages, but like we made it work, you know? And I think it was amazing to see the playbook work, but let me take a step further. I think what was so amazing is like, I remember, you know, going to Singapore when we launched it and I was doing, going to class and I was meeting people there and I didn't once again, like speak the same language as a lot of the people in the class around me. But what was so amazing is after class I realized, I'm like, you guys feel the same way I feel in the middle of you know the New York City or California. And you know, going back to this idea of building a product that changes human behavior, like, whoa, like we figured out a way to change the way people are going to approach classes. It didn't matter what like language you spoke, who you were, like, and I think I loved that. The fact that I could see that the product could really work anywhere. And like I said, for any country, any person out there was like such a nice moment for me as a founder to see that connection. One of the things that was really interesting is we did have to change the supply based on the markets we were in, right? And I think, like, this was this became, like, a fun experiment. When we were in Amsterdam, like, everyone there loves to bike. So, like, we were adding, like, biking experiences. And then in, like, another place, we needed to add, like, a lot of rock climbing because that was, like, a huge thing. And in Australia, like, it was a lot of outdoor workouts and... In Asia, like they actually wanted to add wellness. Like it was like wellness and fitness just like went together, which ended up inspiring a whole other category for the whole company. We needed to figure out how that lifestyle would fit for the people and the places we were launching in it. And a lot of that meant what inventory belongs on there. So that was always a really fun hunt for you know the people who are launching the cities to understand we couldn't just plug and chug what worked in New York in any place. And you know, we we saw the differences even in the states, like. You know, we would see differences in LA versus Boston versus New York. And so, of course, like across the world, there were going to be differences in the way people, you know, want to work out and sort of experience the idea of wellness.
1: Last one, Payal, you've made some news recently that you are writing a book and it's going to be releasing soon. What do you think is going to be unique about your book and what readers can expect?
0: Coming out early 2022, it's called Life Pass, uh, connected to Class West, but. Uh, It's all about different constraints that we face in our lives. And I really, I obviously, I take some of my stories, but really focus in on the learnings for the reader on how do you work through all different types of constraints in your life, whether that's things like society's expectations, being different, the fear of failure. Um, And then I also break down constraints from things like money, you know, and not having enough time or not knowing the right people, because I never want those things to stand in the way from people doing what they truly love in their life. And then the last part of the book is actually an intense goal setting methodology that I've actually implemented in my own life for the past seven years that I have finally have put into writing and put all the details for people to do themselves.
1: I want to thank our guest today. Payal Kadakia is the founder and executive chairman of ClassPass. She is the artistic director also of the Saw Dance Company, the contemporary Indian dance company she founded in 2009. Payal, this has been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being with us on In Conversation with Shopify+. Plus.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right. Thanks again to Payal Kadakia and thank you again for listening if you like what you heard today, stay tuned for our talk coming up next with Philip Krim, the co-founder and CEO of Casper, which did what many DDC brands dream of in 2020, go public at a very well covered IPO. Casper, of course, as we mentioned, is kind of one of the most influential and notable DDC brands we've ever seen. And so you're going to want to hear a chat with Philip. Do not miss that. And to find more of our interviews with guests like Tim Brown, the co-founder and co-CEO of Allbirds. Dave Gilboa, the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker, and Nora Sakija, the co-founder and CEO of Majuri. Visit us online at inconversation.shopifyplus.com.